Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Today, we're here with Robert Logan. Robert, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a fourth-year PhD student in the Integrative Biology Department and Ecology, Evolutionary Biology, and Behavior Program here at MSU. And I am based, uh, actually not at the main campus at in East Lansing, but at a satellite campus at the Kellogg Biological Station out near uh, Kalamazoo, which is the largest off-campus facility for the university. We've got like four and a half thousand acres of uh, long-term agricultural and economic, or agriculture and ecological research and, and work out there. How often do you find yourself going out to the Kellogg Biological Station throughout the week? Oh, I live there. I live on the property. It's a, there's about 20 graduate students uh, who live there full-time on the, at the station. And, um, yeah, we do uh, a range of work. My, my research isn't actually based at the station, but I live uh, on three sides of my house. Three sides of my house, the field, are uh, one of the longest-running agroecology research uh, programs, program fields in the country, uh, just around there. So. Wow, so are you living like in a house with other people or what is it like living on, on, at the same area that you work at? Yeah, so it's a little bit strange. There's not as much, um, well, because the campus is out sort of about 30 minutes away from uh, the town of Kalamazoo and about an hour and 15 minutes away from uh, from East Lansing, we uh, all of the housing is owned by the university, so there's a bunch of old farmhouses and family houses and stuff. So I live in a house that was built, I don't know, a few decades ago, and used to have a family in there, and it's owned by the university. I think my neighbors on five sides in one di- or five houses in one direction, and maybe six six thousand together are all MSU uh, PhD students, master students, technicians, or postdocs. Um, and every now and then you have a transiting faculty member coming through, so it's a it's a fun place to work. Let's take a step back for a second. What do you do at the Kellogg Biological Station? My research is not actually based at the station itself. I study uh, the exciting field of what happens to plants after they die in deserts. So when plants are alive, they do photosynthesis, which everybody from elementary science class knows. They pull carbon dioxide out of the air and they use it to build their bodies. But when they die and the plants start to decompose and decay, that uh, carbon that's in the plant's tissue will actually get converted back into carbon dioxide and go into the air. So just like how you and I, we breathe in oxygen, we eat food, and then we use that to make energy and breathe out carbon dioxide. Bacteria and fungi do the same thing when they're decomposing plants. And so if you're thinking about building climate models to be able to predict climate change and how much CO2 is getting into the air over the course of an entire year, there are a lot of plants in the world and a lot of dead plants. And so our climate models need to know not just how much CO2 is going into the air from fossil fuel burning and sort of these artificial processes, but also these natural processes of plant decay that release CO2. And especially since if you leave food outside of your uh, outside of your refrigerator, things get warmer, they start to decay more, bacteria and fungi like to grow more. Uh, this is really important for understanding uh, since climates are going to get warmer and drier or colder or warmer and drier in a lot of places or wetter in other places, the understanding how those things are sort of related can um, can change can change climates down the way. That's really interesting. I was wondering, do you look at the specifically the fungi or the bacteria or the type of plant that may be decayed or already decayed? Or do you have samples from a specific desert that you look at? 
Yep. So my work is actually based in the Namib Desert in Namibia in southwestern Africa, which is a really cool study system because it's one of the driest places on the planet. So with the dry valleys of Antarctica, the Atacama Desert in Chile, and then the Namib Desert in Namibia, these are three of the driest places in the world. And I study what happens down there in order to understand what happens in uh, sort of less extreme environments. Kind of like if you want to understand what happens in grasslands and prairies and other drylands, which cover about a third of the surface of the earth, if you can figure out how to make your model works in sort of the most extreme dry end of things, that it makes it a little bit easier to sort of backpedal and try to figure out how it works in less extreme environments as well. So uh, you asked about the fungi and bacteria. Um, some of the work that we do is I get to go inside of a lab and I get to uh, grow crazy looking bacteria and fungi on petri dishes. I get to feed them different types of plants and see what they consume and how quickly they do it. I get to use fancy DNA sequencing techniques uh, on samples that I bring back from Namibia to the lab at KBS, at the Kellogg Biological Station, in order to understand uh, who's living there, what kind of genes do they have, what are they capable of doing. Uh, and the most exciting part of my job is I actually get to go to Namibia about once or twice a year and set up experiments where I can actually track in real time uh, how plants are changing and how things are sort of decaying over time, uh, which is really exciting. So I get to set up experiments. I get to go and give them different types of moisture. So feed things rain and non-rain and fog and dew and look at all how all these different factors uh, that drive decomposition interact uh, in like a really, really cool, really, really beautiful environment as well. Besides this desert being one of the driest places on Earth, is there another reason why you're studying how plants decay in this location? One question that I get a lot is, well, that in terms of you work at Michigan State, you live out near Kalamazoo. Why do you have to go to this crazy other place in order to understand what's happening in other places? If you want to know what's happening in wetter places or less extreme environments, why don't you just go there and study them? One of the hard parts is that you can learn, or one of the interesting things is you can learn a lot about a system when you study what happens at sort of the extreme ends of it. So, for example, we have a lot of climate models that we use to predict the effects of climate change and how ecosystems are going to respond if they get wetter or drier or warmer uh, over the next few decades as a result of anthropogenic climate or human-caused climate change. But those models don't really work very well in dry places. And part of that is because there's a lot of processes that are really unique in dry places that don't happen in forests. So for example, if you were to take a bunch of leaves that fell from a tree in a forest here, they're going to fall to the forest floor. They're going to sit in the shade, shaded by a bunch of forest. They're going to have a bunch of rain that's going to fall. They're going to have to go through the winter. There's going to be sort of a specific environment that they're in. If you're in a prairie, in out in Colorado, or you're in a desert in uh, Australia, or you're somewhere in Mongolia or Sub-Saharan Africa, in a really dry environment, you're going to have grasses and leaves that are going to fall, but they're going to be baked in sunlight. They're not going to get a lot of rain. And so what I study is how these other processes that are sort of unique to dry lands uh, drive decomposition and decay and what happens there. And the really cool thing about this is a lot of the computer models that we have for understanding global climate change, they sort of assume, okay, well, you only have carbon dioxide being released from these systems when microbes are active. You only have microbes that are active when there's water. There's only water when there's rain. Therefore, if there's no rain, you shouldn't see anything happening. But the cool thing is when we go outside, we see that there actually are 
there actually is a lot of things, uh, or are a lot of things that are happening in these deserts. And we're finding that a lot of it is because there's dew, fog, high humidity. There's all these other forms of moisture that are available to, uh, to the microorganisms and bacteria and fungi that live in deserts. And the great thing about the Namib in particular, so I know this is sort of a long winding answer to your question, is the Namib Desert, there's places there where on an, in an average year they get no rain at all. There's nothing. Uh, but right at the coast, there are about 200 days of fog every year, where it's fog that comes in right off of the Atlantic Ocean. And so the further along, away you get from the ocean, the less and less fog you get and the more rain. And so you have these sort of a two opposing places where you've got sort of a rain zone, you've got a fog zone, and you see the two of them interacting. You have this really high intensity sunlight, which can degrade plants. It's a process called photodegradation. So when light breaks things down, which anybody who's gotten sunburn outside or left a plastic toy outside knows that ultraviolet light from the sun can break things down. And uh, seeing how that can change in this really dry place, it, it makes it sort of a really good experimental system where we can say, all right, in the absence of all rain, let's really just hone in and look at all these other types of moisture. And in the absence of... Uh, a lot of shade, let's really, really focus in and try to see what's the role that sunlight plays. And hopefully if we can understand sort of specific mechanisms and specific details of how those processes work, then we can try to, uh, it's a little bit easier to understand them in these relatively simple systems, whereas if you tried to do it in a forest or a bigger place where there's a lot of things going on, it's a, it's a lot harder. So, You mentioned the climate change model just now. I was wondering, can you explain how your research works with that model or against it? So climate change is happening. We know that this is happening, and we know that this is largely human-caused. A lot of the work that I do is less about sort of demonstrating that climate change is happening and the causes and more looking at the consequences of it. So, for example, in a lot of ecosystems that rely on either very, very little rain uh, or that receive very little rain, they rely very heavily on what we call non-rainfall moisture, so fog and dew and humidity. There's a think of like coastal fog out in uh, western Cal- California. Those plant, there's a lot of plants and animals and even redwoods that rely a lot on fog. A lot of climate models we have um, actually predict that the fog that they receive is going to decrease in the future as the oceans start to warm up and there's going to be less moisture that those plants are going to receive. Well, like I said a few minutes ago, in the Namib, we have this really, in the Namib Desert, we have this really nice gradient we're right at the coast, we have 200 days of fog, but as you drive further and further away from there, you we get less and less fog and less and less dew. And so if we want to understand, well, how are ecosystems going to respond to decreasing amounts of these moisture sources in the future as a result of climate change, one really great way to try to study that and try to make good predictions about that is to go to a place where we see a natural gradient right now and see how are things different in these different places across this gradient, and then we can use that to better inform uh, our predictions of how climates are going to change down the future. Um, We talked a lot about different extreme environments and how you study how things decay in these environments. I have a background in astronomy, and I'm curious about how understanding these different extreme environments can help astrobiologists study different planetary systems and help us determine the possibility of life on those planets. The Namib Desert is so cool. And by cool, I mean it's super hot. And there's really high-intensity ultraviolet light. And there's hardly any water. And the soils have very, very low nutrients. They're often either volcanic rocks or sand. And so there's a lot of 
work uh, being done, astrobiology work and NASA-funded work trying to study what types of organisms do live in these environments in order to understand what, what sorts of things could live elsewhere. We actually, as a side project, I have a, a side project. It's a, the Michigan Space Grant Consortium, which is a NASA-funded research group. Um, funds Michigan uh, graduate, graduate students at Michigan universities to do research uh, anywhere on very broadly space-related themes. We've got a side project trying to study uh, if you wanted to go to Mars and look at what sorts of things could, uh, would live underneath the surface of Mars if you found like a tiny little seep of water coming up to the surface. Well, you've got a really, really dry, barren environment on the surface with maybe a little bit of water underneath the sand. What kind of things would live there? Well, let's try to go to an Earth an Earth analog and try to look at what sorts of things live in those environments there. So we've got some side projects that are happening around there, too, trying to figure out what those, uh, what those are. Have there been any environments that you study that are similar to otherworldly environments such as Mars that could apply the research that you've learned? Absolutely. So the NAMIB, in a lot of ways, uh, at least on the surface, really looks very similar to places on Mars. Uh, the environment's very similar. It's very dry. In the evenings, it can get fairly cold. Uh, the soil doesn't have much going on. But things still live really, really long. As Jeff Goldblum said, life finds a way. And to reiterate that, we actually, um, as a side project, a couple of friends of mine and I are big sci-fi fans. We went and watched the film 2001 Space Odyssey and noticed that uh, many of the opening scenes with the sort of proto-human apes, many of those background photos were taken only 30 minutes away from where we worked So at our, at our field station out in the desert. And so we went back there last year on the 50th anniversary when the film was, uh, when the film came out, and we took screenshots from the Stanley Kubrick sci-fi film, and we went to the same spot. We retook photographs in the exact same location, and we're able to align them. And I look at over 100 plants, little tiny shrubs up to large trees that were living in this incredibly barren desert that are still there 50 years later and still doing well. We were able to identify what species there were. There were multiple different types of plants. And so it's, it's always amazing what, one, what kind of, um, what kind of plants and like the ways that different organisms can survive in the harshest environments. Uh, it's also really cool when you can get data from iconic sci-fi movies that you liked as a kid and use that in published papers when you grow up. It seems like the sci-fi genre has had a really big influence on your life. How do you plan on using your love for science to further your career, and what do you plan on doing afterwards? You would think that someone in the fourth year of their PhD would have more of a defined career goal in terms of next steps. There's still a lot of things that I want to work out with that. I really enjoy teaching. I really love going out into the field to do research. I've always been fascinated by space in all forms. And there's plenty of different options out there. There's like a bunch of different jobs work, uh, jobs I could do. But uh, the, the two things I do know I really am interested in are field science and field biology, uh, as well as teaching and mentoring in some capacity. And there's so many different possibilities out there that I'm still trying to narrow that down. But there's something cool about just doing and teaching science by itself that that's what keeps me for, keeps pushing me forward right now. Hey, it's okay that you're in your fourth year and that you don't know what you want to do yet. I know a lot of people that are about to defend and still don't know them, so you have time. But I was wondering, what do you do with your spare time? Like, what do you do for fun all the way out in the Kellogg Biological Station? Well, my, my legs are sire, tired and sore right now from uh, going backpacking this weekend. We've got plenty of hiking trails and 
uh, we're right on Gull Lake, um, so there's a bunch of canoeing and stuff we can do. It's a little bit cold to do that right now, but uh, KBS, the the social environment out at the out at the station is is vibrant. We got trivia nights and game nights and uh, receptions, which receptions might not sound like work receptions might not have the best uh, best reputation in, in some fields, but we definitely we definitely know how to make make fun parties. What made you choose to come to Michigan State University to pursue your doctorate degree in the first place? I came here to work with Sarah Evans, who is my advisor. I applied to one graduate school, one program to work with one professor. Uh, it was very convenient. Um, Sarah was a first-year uh, professor starting her lab and trying to establish a research program in Namibia in the Namib Desert. I was a research technician working in the Namib trying desperately to find some professor somewhere back home who was willing to send me back to Namibia. And uh, we got in touch, and it, it, it worked out great. I will say for anybody who's looking at graduate school or, or uh, looking to continue on in science in, in some form, I mean, at some point, just talk to as many people as you possibly can. I, uh, my advisor here, who I've been working with for was it the, uh, four and a half years right now, we first got connected when we were just uh, chatting at a coffee shop when I was in college, and she was just coming over as a visiting speaker, and that tiny little discussion turned into a couple of emails, and then we just sort of stay in touch over the years, and then here I am more than half a decade later working really closely with this colleague on, the, on a lot of the same work. Um, people love to talk about what they do, and people love to talk about uh, the things that are really excited. I like to do that. I'll talk about sci-fi. I'll talk about space. I'll talk about, like, I'll talk about the NAMEB, we'll talk about really cool scenes that we have, uh, and just like beautiful vistas out there. I'll talk about backpacking, hiking, like all my hobbies. Um, and so when you've, you're really like passionate about something and you run into somebody else who also is really passionate about that, uh, just just chat, pick their brain, and yeah, maybe maybe later you can work with them, but just feel free to share enthusiasm. That's, that's really cool that you knew your boss before you were working with her and that you met her like that. I was wondering, did you always know that you wanted to work in this field or did you figure it out when you were visiting labs and talking to different professors about what they do? I've always known that I was interested in science. I first got interested in biology when I was in uh, high school, actually through an urban farming class that I did in high school. And that really got me thinking about being outside and the ways that plants can, I mean, it's pretty basic, but I mean, think about it. Plants literally take dirt, rain, and air, and sunlight, and like build things out of them. That's kind of insane. Um, so that kind of really got me into that. Then when I got into college, I started thinking more about conservation and how can we sort of use biology as a tool to help uh, not only understand the world, but help make things a little bit better, which is what got me into the climate change aspect of things. Um, and then I, uh, after I graduated from college, went and got a job um, doing... Uh, education outreach and research in Namibia at this field, sta field station that I work at. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us in this interview today. We really appreciate you sharing all of that incredible research that you're doing right now. My closing question to you then is, what was it like working in an international field station, and what advice would you give to anyone that is interested in going across borders to perform this incredible research? It's awesome. Namibia is a beautiful country. It is a beautiful place to work. Um, and my colleagues down there are amazing and some of the best people that I know. 
I'd say one of the hardest parts about doing work, field work internationally is really just logistics. You got to do permits, you got to do papers, you got to do travel, you got to get visas, you got to get import permits, you got to export permits, all of that. Um, but the insights that we get from going to some of these really extreme environments and really digging in and asking these really hard questions about the biology and ecology of what's happening here um, and what we get, the knowledge and information we can get out of that and how that informs our understanding of climate change, I think is really worth it. Um, the second part, too, is one of the really hard parts about when I first went down there is not only not knowing anything about the system itself, but also not knowing a lot of the, not knowing the people, not knowing a lot of the culture. And I think over the last seven years that I've been working in Namibia, because I started working there before I came to Michigan State, um, I have made a tremendous number of colleagues, uh, or made a tremendous number of friends, and met a tremendous number of colleagues down in Namibia who really make the work worth it. There's a lot of folks down there who are doing tremendous work, um, sort of pushing the boundaries of knowledge, and I definitely believe that I learn a lot more from them every time I go down than, uh, than they learn from me. I'm lucky to get to work there. So, and you also asked about advice for anybody else who wants to work internationally. I would say that science increasingly is becoming collaborative and it's becoming a partnership where you work with a lot of people. I think the stereotype of some old white man in a lab coat sitting in a lab somewhere mixing chemicals is not really an accurate depiction of what science looks like these days. Um, it's lots of teams, it's lots of international groups, it's lots of people getting together to work. Uh, on answering these really challenging questions. And so if you really are interested in science, and especially if you're interested in doing international work, obviously there's always the easy stuff of study hard, read books, go to the library. Those are all really good, really important things. But you got to be a people person. you got to talk to people. You should learn about, uh, learn about how to work together on teams um, chat with people from different places, travel a bit if you have the resources and opportunity to do so, if you're lucky enough to do that. But, uh, yeah, science is all about working working with each other in order to, to learn about the world. So don't, uh, don't discount the value of just, I don't know how else to put it, just be really, just be a good person, be good, be good at working on teams. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate the input that you gave us. Yeah, thanks, y'all. This was really fun. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.